It's Friday, November 14th, 2014. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I was listening back to some old Gist segments, like out of order, and I realized I was giving myself some secret messages, secret signals, M. Night Shyamalan style. These messages were telling me to do something. What was it? I had to decode them. I realized they were telling me not to make any more movies. No, sorry, that's not a secret message. That's overt. That's what Hollywood's saying to M. Night. But I I did note that one day I was talking about Nobody Beats the Wiz, that store where they don't even have to live up to the slogan because it's in the name of the store. And then the next day I was talking about Mayo, Eggless Mayo, and how this company Mayo is fighting with Hellman's because their Hellman says, well, there's no such thing as Eggless Mayo. You can't call yourself Mayo. And I was thinking, wait a minute, wait a minute. Take the Nobody Beats the Wiz approach. Forget your claims concentrate on names. So no egg mayo. The problem is you're ending on the mayo. That's the thing that's being modified. The no egg is the modifier. Flip it. Name your product mayo eggno. Lego my eggno. And you could have a character like a corporate spokes character named Mayor Ely, like Mayor McCheese. Only here's how you spell Mayor Ely. M-A-Y-O in big capital letters and little tiny R-E-A-L-L-Y. Get it? Mayo, really? And he could be on the side of the carton and you're saying, it's, it's really mayo, it's mayo, really? Or not. It doesn't matter. They can't prove it. You have plausible deniability and spreadable enjoyability. On the show today, I am late to this issue, the issue of being late. And we'll do another post-pretty impact statement. But first, Congress is in session, even if they are comparable to handicapped poultry. Today is the third day of a lame duck Congress, like the fowl from which this iteration of legislature derives its sobriquet. There is much furious paddling going on. The president, who left for a trip to Asia a few days ago, has announced initiatives on climate change, on immigration, came out in favor of net neutrality. This prompted Senator John Barrasso of Wyoming, chairman of the Senate Republican Policy Committee, to say... The president is completely ignoring the will of the American voters who turned out on Election Day. Of course, Obama is not going to un-Obama himself just because Republicans set records on election night. But one record was lower voter turnout as a percentage, the lowest in 72 years. And when you think about that quote, remember what Barrasso said, he's completely ignoring the will of the American voters. That is true. But the question could be, are the American voters the American public. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont is behind a bill for a day off to vote. He's arguing that such low turnout threatens the definition of democracy. Does it? I called up Julian Zelazar, Princeton professor of history and public affairs. I wanted to talk to him about how to read the election results. But first to ask, in a country of 316 million people, if only 77 million vote, that's still a democracy, right? Yes, it still is a democracy. It might be a democracy where people aren't taking full advantage of their rights. It might be a democracy uh, that's not as functional as we hope. Uh, but certainly, given the number of people who can vote, the freedom from the kind of restrictions that other countries still have and that we had for much of American history, this is very much a democracy. And the decline in voting is a story that was with us throughout the 20th century into the 21st century. It's not new. Uh, and I support efforts to revive voting, to encourage people to vote. 
Uh, but certainly, I think American democracy in that respect is still alive and well. Isn't it more of an indictment of the either the president or the candidates who didn't turn out their presumed Democratic voters? Would you say it's more an indictment of them or the system? I think both. I think it's certainly an indictment of the system. You know, one of the, the reasons people don't vote is they're disgusted with how Washington works. Uh, either thinking about the way campaign finance, money, and politics work, or thinking about the way in which Congress can't seem to pass any bills, they just get turned off. And it's also, though, the inability of candidates to really excite their base. And in this case, it's undeniable that President Obama dragged down the Democratic vote. The vote numbers were low. And part of this is simply not a hatred of Obama, but a frustration with Obama among Democrats. And many of them decided that this was just not an important day and not a lot was at stake. What do you make of the fact that several liberal ballot initiatives, when put directly to the voters, passed things like gay marriage, legalized uh, pot, and uh, increased minimum wage? I think that's important. One of the disconnects in American politics is people are often philosophically against government. But when you talk about specific issues, they're very liberal. So uh, the same person who might say, I hate Washington, and I think the private market does everything better, if you ask that person, what do you think about Social Security, they might say, oh, that's a pretty good program. Uh, and I think what we're seeing with some of these state-based policies, whether it's the minimum wage or marijuana, is that the electorate uh, remains pretty liberal on a lot of specific issues. And certainly it's something Republicans should take note of. This is not a clear shift to the right. It's a victory for Republicans in a midterm. Uh, but those kinds of votes, uh, including very strong support for higher minimum wage in many parts of the country, is an indication that liberal values also remain very strong. Do you think you can make the case that, I'm going to add one other thing to it, that all these uh, Republicans who ran away from personhood amendments, that wasn't on the ballot, but that happened a lot of times, so that's sort of a moderation of uh, the most right-wing stance you could take on, say, right-to-life issues. All right, so you throw that all that in there, decide, maybe you could come to the conclusion that there's a way for liberal ideas to win, and that is to win the ideas. And even if the candidates aren't winning, a smart candidate will adopt those ideas in order to get elected. Polling's good. Everyone knows what the electorate thinks. So maybe liberals should concentrate on winning ideas as much as winning elections. Well, I think that's important. I think liberals have a tendency sometimes to run away from their own success. I think there are many Democrats who argue that this is one of the problems that President Obama and other Democrats uh, consistently face. A lot of supporters of Elizabeth Warren, for example, say, why don't the Democrats more aggressively champion what they've done for the economy through government? Why don't they boast about their own history and talk about measures like the minimum wage? It's just proof uh, that Republican arguments are, are not correct. But I think you know, Democrats are hesitant to do this. There is a sense we live in a conservative time, a conservative period, and many Democrats are, have been skittish ever since Ronald Reagan took office. Last question or line of inquiry. Your new book is called The Fierce Urgency of Now Lyndon Johnson Congress and the Battle for the Great Society. There are no white Republicans left in the Congress. Lyndon Johnson was one. If you look at the Texas State House statistics, not that there are zero, but I think it's about you know, like 18 out of 100-something white Republican men. Would Lyndon Johnson have been a Republican today? 
No, he wouldn't have been a Republican today. Uh, you know, the values, the political values he supported and his fundamental belief that government had a positive role in dealing with everything from civil rights to education, I think is fundamentally at odds with the philosophy of the Republican Party today. So he was different. The region was different. And I think that he wouldn't fit very well in the modern GOP. Would Lyndon Johnson have been electable today? Uh, probably. He was a very good politician. And, uh, you know, some argue Democrats need more people like him, uh, meaning Democrats who are fully comfortable with government rather than always shying away from it. So uh, you could make a case that, you know, at least his memory and his tradition is very important model for the Democrats in the current day and age. Julian Zelizer, professor of history and public affairs at Princeton. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. problems. People have problems. That's true. What can you do? People say that. Hey, what can you do? I'll tell you what you could do. You could write to Prudy. That's right. Dear Prudy, she answers your problems. Prudy really is Emily Yaffe. She dispenses advice. But then what? Then people get a call from us. Sometimes in what we call a post-Prudy impact statement. Hello, Emily. Hi, Mike. What do you have for us today? We have a problem from someone who called himself Ethical Dilemma. Okay. He is a young, untenured university professor who's at uh, a school we could call Sexist U. (laughs) Which is a uh, lot of schools, from what I've been reading. (laughs) The head of his department is a 55-plus old white guy who's a total sexist, likes to make comments about the attractive young women who attend university uh, with a couple of other older, creepy, tenured faculty members. That's not the problem. The problem is a female student came to Ethical Dilemma and said she doesn't know what to do. She's broke. She's been having sex with the head of the department in exchange for money. I think we call that something besides a student loan. Something institution. (laughs) And actually, there are two professors involved in this tuition ring. Yeah. So I talked to an employment attorney because actually knowing this information could be very problematic for this young, untenured professor. As he says, for him to just move forward and try to expose this, could end up with him losing his job and nothing happening to the two miscreants. So I talked to a, an employment attorney who said, first of all, this guy has to find out if he's a mandated reporter. If so, he's just got to tell. If not, he really can't move forward without the young woman's go ahead and permission. So he needs to talk to her again, see is she willing to talk to someone confidentially on campus or the Title IX coordinator. This is the person who oversees sex discrimination laws. Right. That's not necessarily going to be confidential, but would she be willing to take some action? So really all he can do, unless he has to report, is uh, be a sounding board for her and try to 
encourage her to go to the people who might be able to get something done. Okay, so in uh, maybe more than a nutshell, nutshell and a half, your advice to him was what? Well, to talk to her, see what she's willing to do, he probably should talk to an employment lawyer himself, you know, find out is he required to report anything like this that he hears, Mm -hmm. because this is a very dangerous, fraught piece of knowledge for him. Yeah. And unlike a lot of jobs, the difference between tenured and untenured is night and day. It's not everything. Yeah, it's everything. And they could have a pretext, maybe they could convince themselves that they're going to deny him tenure for another reason, but this could be a headache for him. I'm interested to see where this goes and what he did. Totally. Hello? Hi. We're trying to meet a man who sometimes goes by the title Ethical Dilemma. Would that be you? Yep. All right. I'm Mike Pesca. Say hello to Emily. She's the dear prudy in question. Hi, Emily. Hi, Ethical. So just so, so we've elevated you. I know your title was Ethical Dilemma, but we're calling you Ethical because we hope ethical <laughs> ethical things happened. Take us back there. Well, first of all, when did you write the letter? Gosh, that was months ago. I don't remember exactly the month I wrote it. Okay, so it was uh, it was a few months ago. And a few months ago. You, you got Emily's advice. It, it it wasn't easy. I mean, there were a lot of things to do, right? Yeah. Yeah. So what you do? Mm-hmm. I. Generally followed the advice. I ended up talking to uh, the person who was the, the Title IX coordinator for my university, mm-hmm. who happened to be the, the vice president of human relations. Mm-hmm. They did an investigation. I was not satisfied with how they did the investigation. They brought lawyers in. It seemed pretty clear to me that, that the whole time they were trying to do damage control and prevent a sort of PR disaster for the, the institution. While they were doing the investigation, how was the student who came to you? Was she in communication with you? Was she telling you how she felt about the investigation? Uh, she did. She felt also that the university, in their questions and the things they said, and didn't really provide her with the kind of protection or response that she wanted. Mm-hmm. She and, and two other students who were also being harassed ended up leaving the university. I helped all three of those students get transfers to other universities. Some of the perpetrators of the things going on found out, uh, including my boss, that that basically I was a whistleblower. Mm-hmm. Um, so That's there was a retali- yeah. there was retaliation against me, and I ended up leaving the university as well. So, <laughs> wow. Um, I found another job, so I got a job in Los Angeles and moved. So not only did I move jobs, I moved halfway across the country. <laughs> But do you look back and, okay, mm-hmm. you really are ethical. You seem to have really done the right thing. Do you look back as this period as, you know, having wasted time at the university? I don't think so. I I do feel like that it was good advice and I did the right thing. The people being hurt, I helped sort of get out of the situation. I know two of the students or former students now have considered a lawsuit against the university because nothing was really ever done about it. Mm-hmm. Um, Are the professors who were paying students for sex, they're still in their positions? Were they punished in any way? As far as I can tell, they were not. There may have been a reprimand, but it certainly didn't go beyond that. So someone said, don't have sex with students and pay them. That, that's the upshot. I can only guess that wow. may, hopefully that was said, but I don't even know that much. So. <laughs> Just tell me it's not the women's studies department. It's not. It's the fine art department. <laughs> oh, wow. So you say you turned up three students who were being paid by these 
old creeps for sex? Um, there was only actually one student being paid for sex. The other two students were being sexually harassed more or less constantly. Being rewarded for flirting in one case and another case was punished for not flirting. And um, there were some very clear cases where even though they weren't being paid for sex, there was very heavy sexual harassment going on, even to the point of uh, professors physically trying to make a move on students, trying to kiss students, trying to touch them in inappropriate ways and things like that. All right. So my final question for you is, this is hard. This came at a cost. You don't seem to have benefited from it at all, except if you believe in things like a soul or being a good person. Um, hey, he's out in L.A. Sounds <laughs> great. I hope so. But, uh, you know, if you had to do it again, would you have done anything differently? Or are you glad you took uh, the course you did? I'm glad I took the course I did. The only thing I would have done differently was would be to take stronger action quicker. I will say that, you know, things worked out. I, I did suffer financially. I had to make a quick exit from where I was living, and I had to sell my house for a loss. So, wow. I, you know, I did suffer some repercussions, but I have no regrets about that whatsoever. All right. Well, thank you, Ethical, and good luck to you in he your new job. He is Ethical. You win. It's not a dilemma. He's he lives ethical. up to it, yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Good luck in L.A. Hope you get tenure. Thanks a lot. Bye. Thanks. Good to talk to you. Mm-hmm. Bye. That was one of those that you can't call it a happy ending, but it's good that he took your advice. And the best thing that could have happened, given that set of circumstances, seems to have happened for him. Boy, that's it's a heavy story. You know, a lot of people were victimized and no one in this administration seemed to take just horrendous sexual abuse seriously. It's very hard to ask victims to go forward. We know for many cases like this. Well, and as you pointed out, it's so hard to get rid of someone with tenure. So you can see the university is like, let's just cover it up and then all the troublemakers are gone. And by the way, that tactic seems to have worked. Everyone who's a headache is now not associated with the school. Doesn't seem to be a lawsuit yet. All right. That said, you think you did a good job with your advice. I think it was great that he took it. And I want to thank you. Emily Yaffe writes the Dear Prudence column for Slate. And from time to time, we do these post-Prudy Impact statements. Thank you, Emily. My pleasure. And now the spiel. It might not be great, but it's late. Sorry, was the show late getting up today? Or were you made late to work because you were so captivated by the gist? All right, that was serial. We've got Vexillology Corner. They've got the Nisha call. Can't figure out why they're so much more compelling. Anyway, lateness. You've been late somewhere, sometime. We all have. It's human. It's inevitable. It's unacceptable in the mayor of New York. De Blasio's reputation for being late hits raw nerves in Queens today. This particular instance of habitual mayoral lateness was for a memorial ceremony, so it was seen as quite disrespectful. And Mayor de Blasio has at times been so late to events involving children that they get tired, cranky. One kid even passed out after waiting for an hour before the mayor named the school's chancellor. And perhaps good will come of this public shaming and the mayor will be chastened by the negative attention. You know, the New York Post handed him an alarm clock and then snapped a picture. Note to liberal politicians, don't accept gifts from the New York Post, especially if they tick. And the resulting picture, in fact, exploded onto the front page today. But the analysis of the lateness, well, it too was a little bombastic. There was this guy, quoted on WCBS, peeved about the mayor's lateness. 
He's not such a good mayor after all. I won't vote for him again. Okay. And the Wall Street Journal quoted experts about his honor's lateness. In an article, they said that it reignited questions about his management skills and his image as a leader. Here, I'll read from the article. Harris Stratner, a psychologist and clinical associate professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, says tardiness could reflect poor organizational skills or an inability to shift easily among tasks, or be a sign of passive aggressiveness, whereby a late arrival is a deliberate slight to others. Well, good thing we got the clinical associate professor of the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai to tell us that maybe there's a subconscious or symbolic way to interpret why one of the busiest men in America is late to things. Maybe it is fair to judge him harshly because his lateness reflects upon his management skills or his image as a leader, but doesn't his handling of the Ebola crisis offer a bit more affirmative evidence? Or if you want to go with the negative, he had plenty of high-profile documentable failures, like his negotiation for preschool funding with the state. I mean, those are real things. Those aren't symbolic ways to read into what he's done. You know, when you think about it, don't you want the mayor working late, even if it entails oversleeping, figuring out, say, how to get the six train running on time so maybe thousands of people won't be late to their jobs after they're delayed after an earlier incident? That's how they say it on the subway. The announcers say, after an earlier incident, expect delays. Think about that. Think about that phrase, after an earlier incident. Well, I, I don't think the train was late because about something in the future, right? The singularity didn't cause the train lateness. And they say, after an earlier incident. It's nice. It's six syllables. All it means is a thing that happened. Life is an earlier incident. And can't they change those messages up, right? After an earlier incident, expect delays. After an earlier incident, expect years of therapy and uncomfortable conversations whenever you see your parents. But let's alight from public transit as I was not allowed to, thus making me 25 minutes late to to deliver my son to school. But no, no, let's get off the public transit and let's get back to the public figures. Lateness is not a good trait. It's a selfish trait, if it is indeed a trait. But I have to say the always on time types, the politicians, the sticklers about this, they kind of weird me out. George W. Bush loved being on time and he loved working out. And he loved clearing brush. Great for George W. Bush. I will say this. If the chronically you chronic, the chronically on time, my word for those who are on time, and this is rare, if they have a permissive attitude to the frailties of human nature, to the occasional tardiness in others, they're okay. But I regard the military precision with which the Uchronic run their lives as Dick Cheney regarded recycling. A personal virtue needn't be policy. Societally, historically, lateness is derided. Late, after all, does mean dead, not a great association. Shakespeare and Merry Wives of Windsor wrote, Better three hours too soon than a minute too late. I disagree with Shakespeare. There are lots of times when being early is much worse than being late. If you're going to pick me up at 7, I won't think twice if you pull up at 7.04. But if you're there at 6.54, I'm going to be a little put off. All right. All right. Grab a beer from the fridge and read the collective works of Harris Straitner, psychologist and clinical associate professor at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. I'm just neutering my ferret. Be out in a minute. The coach of the New York Giants, Tom Coughlin, insisted his players be five minutes early. He defined that as on time, five minutes early. He used to actually find players for being three minutes early, which for him was two minutes late. Did it instill a culture of respect? Did it win him those two Super Bowls? Who knows? I do know this. Two weeks ago, Coughlin failed to throw a challenge flag after a referee's bad call. 
He explained he was too late to reach for the flag. The Giants are tied for last in their division. Can the always early Coughlin save his job? It might be, literally, too late for that. And that's it for today's show. Andrea Salenzi is the producer of The Gist, a job she got by being the second caller to the contest line. Why wasn't she the first caller? Hey, Salenzi, only one guy could be that quick, right? You want to host? You snooze, you lose. Joel Meyer, managing producer of Slate Podcasts, prefers Nathaniel Hawthorne to former tennis great Rod Laver. It's all in his Kindle single, Better Nate Than Laver. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Andy Bowers, once tried to market a line of YA novels about a pair of teenage sleuths who would have had wild adventures solving crimes and riding dune buggies, but they never made it to the crime scenes on time. The Tardy Boys failed to sell. You can subscribe on iTunes and give us a listen on Stitcher, our daily email. To sign up for that, go to slate.com slash gist email. We are on Yo. Download that app. Subscribe to podcast. We'll yo-yo when the show's ready. We're on facebook.com slash slate gist. Email us at the gist at slate.com. I was once so late to a Napa Valley grape festival that I wound up at a Napa Valley Raisin Remembrance. Thanks for listening. Hello, this is Felix Salmon from Slate Money, and this week we have a whole special, very special edition all about philanthropy. And if you listen through to the end, you can find out how to double your philanthropic dollar. Search for Slate Money at the iTunes store or just go to slate.com slash podcasts. <laughs>